Health research is complicated no matter the scale or the scope. Global health research, however, brings with it particular issues. For the last decade, researchers in epidemiology have been pulled between issues related to research integrity and research fairness. Bridging the two is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department. We have two guests joining us today. The first is Dr. Sandra Alba, epidemiologist at KIT Royal Tropical Institute in Amsterdam. For the past 15 years, she's been applying statistical and epidemiological methods to evaluate public health programs in low- and middle-income countries. Her research focuses on data quality and good epidemiological practice, more specifically the interplay between research integrity and research fairness in multidisciplinary international research collaborations. Joining her is Dr. Susan Ramisha, Senior Research Officer at Telethon Kids Institute and a biostatistician working in the field of public health and infectious disease epidemiology. Ramisha works on the Malaria Atlas Project and has over 15 years of experience in designing and conducting malaria and health system research. Her interests include applying advanced and modern statistical approaches to data from surveys, research, and routine health surveillance systems to generate evidence to guide decision-making processes in public health practice, policy formulation, and health systems performance at national, regional, and global levels. The two are joining us today to talk about the bridge guidelines designed to help bridge research integrity and research fairness in global health epidemiology. Sandra and Susan, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. I'm just going to get started with actually, I think the question John was going to respond to, but simply just so we know what Bridge is about and why it matters, if you could describe what research fairness and research integrity are in your field and why this intervention is necessary. Uh, When we talk about research integrity and as the word itself stands, integrity, it's like how you do your work. It's like how, how do you work in a manner that someone can trust what you have done. And even you yourself, you feel the confidence of the work that you have done in a way that you are, you are kind of ready to share it to other people and to spread it widely. So it started from the entire range of when you are designing your work, like the methodology that you use, and to the time that you have the results. So things like honesty, are you honestly, can you honestly talk about your work? Is it of a good quality? And did you actually carefully thought around and design the work and ask also how you are implementing it? And all the time you have to think that can someone actually repeat this work, the, the replicability of this work? And that is a big thing in the, in the epidemiological research. And uh, is it everything that was done can be talked in a tra- transparency manner? And uh, um, as you are communicating it openly to the, to the audiences, to the end users, can you speak of things that you have done in, in, in an open manner? But also it includes the piece of the professionalism because as, you are, as you're working in the research, you are involving people. And there we need you to, to respect those who are involved in the work. So that creates like the entire two forces between doing the work and those who are working with it. But another thing, which is the last piece about integrity, it's like you have to feel that I'm accountable for the work that I've done. 
And, and that accountability kind of closes the part of the integrity. So I don't know if Sandra has anything to add, then if she can talk about fairness, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, I think uh, you, you summarize it uh, very well, all our uh, yeah, concerns regarding integrity and our day-to-day -day relationship with the integrity. But indeed, uh, as a global health epidemiologist, another important concept for us to take into account is, uh, is research fairness. It gained increasing importance over the past years, and it's uh, very much aligned uh, with calls to decolonize uh, global health, because there's a recognition that the wealthiest and best equipped uh, institutions have a, a significant competitive advantage uh, over uh, the other institutions and that can create uh, power imbalances and can then in turn actually really affect the integrity of the research. So the two are definitely linked. But the research fairness is really about uh, yeah, bringing research home uh, in a certain way. So it's really ensuring that there is a local ownership uh, for the research, that it's part of a local uh, research uh, agenda and uh, that the benefits are then found again locally uh, in the uh, context where the research is being done. So I, in a way, one could maybe summarize, uh, yeah, the, the research integrity is about really uh, aiming to have really scientifically rigorous uh, research and the fairness is, uh, from our perspective, is really about the, the socially impactful. You know, you want to have the impact in the right place and the right place is where the research is being done. It should benefit those populations there. Yeah, you know this is this is great. This is this is fascinating work, and uh, it's it's fun to be able to talk to you about this. I, I could it might help just to step back and, and give us an example of a, of the kind of problem that's investigated in global health. You know, so to help set the stage and give context beyond the the kind of the general framework that you've started, let's let's drill down a little bit. I know you gave this really this nice hypothetical example as part of the significance piece that that you wrote up, but I'm I'm wondering if you could give us a different a different example that might help us gain some insight into this. Let, let me share my story. We we like uh, stories and here, I, <laughs> <laughs> and I like the the summary that Rosemary uh, put together about uh, explaining me, and that is, I think it has summed the big story of myself. I am a, I, I'm, I'm working with Malaria Atlas Project now, and I'm coming from, it's, it's, a, global, it's a global level uh, where I am now. But I started 18 years ago, I started working at the National Institute for Medical Research in Tanzania. So those are early 2000, I was very naive and <laughs> coming in as a small, very energetic data analyst and you love data and you just love statistics. So from the local, when you're working in the, in the country level, you are actually, you're very close to the, what we call end users. You're really close because you're, you're there. You see the problems and you think through, you, you can sometimes actually, we can be in meetings and you can swap between you become a researcher or you become a community. And we used to make those role play so that you can design your work well. Then I grew, I became now a regional researcher, but now you have multiple countries coming into play. So it's actually you're growing. Then now I'm in the international level, or the global level. So as you're working, so I'm, I'm gonna connect that to understand this integrity and fairness part. As you are growing, you are learning. You are learning as actually, as you are growing, you, you understand the global context, but something you are disconnecting yourself to the end users. Because as, as you go in the bigger picture, you are, you are starting to think things in the global level and you, you start slowly ignoring things, which they're actually very important. And then later we'll talk about them in our criterias. When you come to the international space, you are even further stretched. And sometimes you don't choose to, to disconnect. It's a, it's a setup that you are disconnects you. 
So this is this 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 integrity and fairness and everything. I see myself, for example, as a victim of that because you have now to to find a way. It's like that will still bring the will maximize what Sandra was taught. They maximize the impact at the at the very lower level of where the use of that real estate is. You want to to be honest. You want to be of good quality. You have to be uh, to be accountable, and so in the work that I do, without mentioning exact, specific examples, I see, I see the need of some the work that we are going to discuss with about the bridge, the need of having that way of standardizing things. And as I was working with Nimbri, I've been sharing with my colleagues. I was challenged, for example, in, in the clinical research, they have what they call the good clinical practice and if you before you you take your feet into any of the clinical work they will train you on how to do good clinical practice but we know we don't have something like that in the good epidemiological practice so it's like i don't give you examples but these are the challenges that have been driving in our heads and like that can we challenge the epidemiological side of research to, to stretch themselves, maybe we not to be able to reach the clinical world or clinical research, but we can go there. So without giving examples, is that we just have something that we already we are looking at and we have seen it and we want to get there. Standardizing things in a way that can be done everywhere in the right way. We can trust each other, whether you are privileged or you are advantages or disadvantaged, but you can we can trust each other in the product that comes from the epidemiological research. So let me just follow, a quick follow up. Yeah, just th so thank you. I mean, I, what I'm hearing you say is that that it's it's kind of pushing back against this loss of connection to the people most directly impacted by some of these these particular health concerns. That that as you as you go to to greater levels of of aggregation, that you start losing some of the connection. And this seems like this this was a direct. This isn't kind of pushing back and reacting to that in part. Is that a, is that fair to, as a summary? Is, is a fair of the summary, and that's why we think that once we have a guideline, you will, you will know that, okay, if, if I feel disconnected, I have something that I can hold on. When you, have an, when you have a guide, it helps you to connect you. So that, but if you don't know, you can do it either way. I, I think as long as you think this is right, you do it because there's nothing that is standardizing how you should do the work. And that's what brings our bridge actually into the play. This is really interesting to think about, and I—I I mean, you—you—you you, you have me thinking about other terms that I'd never heard before, and so I'm gonna. One was the idea of parachute studies, and the other was ethics dumping, and I'm—I'm I'm wondering, you know, and, and maybe Sandra, I don't know if you wanted to take this as sort of what what is it that's the, what are the concerns that are encapsulated in those in those those phrases? Yeah, the, the parachute research is what happens when you have. Uh, people who don't know the context at all, who are suddenly parachuted or actually parachute themselves into a context to uh, to conduct research. And yeah, I think Susan can probably think of uh, more parachute researchers than she wished uh, she could, because of course <laughs> she must have seen it uh, happening in Tanzania. Um, um, an issue in global health, because like going back to what, what is global health. So global health, uh, if you look at the definitions, it's about uh, studying yeah, the cause of morbidity and mortality across geographical boundaries. 
Yeah, so that's a bit the, the definition of global health and with a focus on health equity and also health promotion. Yeah, so that's a bit like the, the keywords in, uh, in global health. So in theory, it's about the, the, the diseases that cross boundaries. And actually, this is where Susan's work in malaria is really a, a, really a, a global, a, a, really an example of global health research because malaria is exactly one of these diseases, right? That crosses all boundaries. And I think it's, you know, it, 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 it really makes sense, uh, you know, also her, her path, uh, her career path that she mentioned, first working really at national level, then at regional, because this this, this is a regional problem uh, uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, but then also beyond. In that sense, it's really a global health problem. But what's happening also in global health is that there's researchers uh, from many different contexts that, that work in many different contexts. And one problem that we have is when researchers who don't know a context in which they study uh, start doing research somewhere. And that's when we really see this disconnect that Susan is uh, talking about uh, happening. And uh, it's the, the way, the direction in which it happens normally is researchers from a high income country, somewhere from the US or Europe, who are pursuing, you know, maybe uh, studies, uh, postgraduate studies, PhDs, whatever, who then, for one reason or another, end up doing a research in a, a low middle income, a low or middle income country, like somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa and Tanzania, whatever. And yeah, they may not uh, know the context. They may not really know what the, the data users uh, really need. And uh, they will start doing the research that they think is right. But then they may actually really continue uh, pursuing a bit research that's uh, really further opening this gap that we see with um, between what the data users need and what the research is actually producing. So that's that's really the problem with parachute research. And it's it, I think it's it's a good uh, it's a good imagery. You can really imagine this research who's like parachuted, uh, you know, into context and has no idea. So that's that, that, that's a, a problem and that a lot of, which thankfully is receiving more attention. And in some ways, the, the bridge guidelines want to try to address that. And that's why there's a lot of emphasis on uh, really recreating that, uh, you know, that connection with the local decision makers that Susan was talking about and saying, you know, how that was really standard practice for her when she was working in Tanzania at local level. And yeah, that's really what the, the guidelines aim to do. And uh, what, uh, of course, with Susan and other colleagues, we've really tried to infuse within the guidelines because we see that as a really important um, aspect of doing global health research. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about global epidemiology with Sandra Alba and Susan Ramisha. I wondered if you could maybe now kind of walk us through what those bridge guidelines are. I think we, I think you know, you've mapped out really well what these issues are, um, and I love the visual of the parachute researcher in journalism. We also have this phrase of someone who sort of parachutes in to report a story and parachutes out. Um, so I was like, oh, yes, I know exactly what that's meaning. But maybe now we can kind of talk about, you know, what these particular guidelines are that you guys ha- are suggesting researchers should follow and why they are the ones that, that we should be paying attention to. So what are these guidelines? Yeah, good uh, epidemiological practice uh, guidelines. And they consist of six standards, which cover the six major steps in an epidemiological study. So it starts from study preparation, then protocol development, then data collection, data management, data analysis, and then reporting and communication. 
And so for each of these steps, there's uh, a, yeah, a standard, which, you know, explains a little bit what you should aim for if you want to go through this step with both integrity and fairness. Because again, here the reminder is that we try to encapsulate both the concerns of doing a study with integrity and fairness. And then within each uh, standard, there's a number of criteria, which really take you step by step through uh, each of the steps of, uh, of, do, of conducting a study. And they really act as a bit of a yeah checklist reminder it's not really a it is presented as a checklist but the idea is really like a bit of a reminder of what you should keep in mind because we're also aware that you, we want it to be a useful guide so we don't want it to be something that you know you just go through as a checklist kind of item that you go check 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 it's really to encourage you to think of like the different um, things that are important at every stage of the study and to really uh, encourage hopefully a dialogue within the study team about what needs to be done at every step of the study I was looking on this, um, I think, blog post that the two of you wrote, um, where you were also sort of breaking down, sort of, not only are you trying to bridge integrity and fairness, but sort of bridging different players or, or things that at play. So you've got bridging academia and practice, bridging disciplines, and bridging the power gap that you write about in this blog post that I thought was so useful to also think about this stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So just to add on what Sandra was saying in the... The blog was another uh, one of our strategy, like to really push these bridge guidelines to the to the audience, and that was published in the series of Equitable Partnership, and that fits you very well. <laughs> we love that series, and that I think, oh, this is the one where to go. So, as Sandra was saying about the the emphasis that we are putting into this, the the, the one of the pieces that we see that we need a bridge is about the researcher themselves and the practicals. We, we call it the academic, academia and practice. So the researchers, they are these people at different levels. They do work, they have the skills, they have the technology, they have the resources. And sometimes they have thought of a problem. And it's true, it's a problem. But sometimes you find, if you want to have the most impact, to maximize that impact, that fairness that we talked about, you need to involve those end users. And that is a practical part of it. And there we said the local communities. That could be one example. Could be your policymakers. Because sometimes we leave, we go to until the end, then you come and you start bombing the policymaker and make them to make a decision. But you forgot completely about them as you're doing your research work. So we need that. Those are the people that later, they will do the work. Either if you did a bad work, they have to struggle to make it go into the practice. So we want to bridge that. Because that will, uh, will ensure that, Sandra have already spoke about that, you will answer the right questions, that the public they are of interest, and you actually to be in the con- context of the problem that you are working on. And then we are expecting that to have the uh, most impact. And uh, another one is the disciplines, because there are two things. There are, they say sometimes you have a qualitative research that you, you generate numbers. That's beautiful. But what's behind these numbers? And you have the qualitative, which talks about stories. Some people, they are just talking about things, but what's the magnitude of this myth and people perspective about things? So some, well, there we, we used two examples, like two disciplines, for example, quantitative, people like us, statisticians and everything. And we have the sociologists, the anthropologists. We want to bridge those. And we're emphasizing so much about in the design of this, this uh, criteria of the, of the, uh, that are included in the bridge that we sh- they should come together because they are complementing each other to understand the full story of what is actually happening. Then the last is this power gap, 
we don't talk about that, but we know there are imbalances, a lot of imbalances. People, they might be just this disadvantaged because they don't have resources, they don't have the technology, they don't have the expertise. But it's not actually they don't have, it's the, it's the measure that people are using to look at that and scale it. So whatever that is there, at whatever level that is this, can it be bridged together so that we, we, we benefit from each other? Because you can have the money, but a local scientist could have a local understanding. So your money might not be able to be applied in the right way because you have not managed to bridge the two. So that power gap, it has to be bridged. And the thing that we try to emphasize, we promote dialogue. And in that, in that, in that blog, we talked about dialogue we had our phrase from, from Kiswahili that you have to build the bridges because it's, it's, these are local ways that community used to bridge each other. Dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. Talk to people. Involve you so that you can select the right stakeholder, the right people to work with, the right means of doing the work. And that one we think from this guidance, at least it will give you like a way, steps by step. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that is, I think, that's the, the summary of the blog that we try to summarize our bridge guidelines. You know, one of the things when, when I was looking through the, the guidelines and the checklist that you have that, that, that I thought was, was kind of neat was that, you know, like, for example, in, in standard three, the data collection, the, the very first one is use valid and reliable research instruments. And I, I, I thought, you know, that's, that's what everyone would expect from any study. You know, that, that's sort of a standard thing. That, and then the, next, the very next point is ensure that research instruments are locally adapted and culturally appropriate. I thought, ah, Okay, that's the push pause. You know, every you know, you sort of are, you're flowing through this and saying, oh yes, of course, of course, everyone does that. Wait, but they don't do necessarily the second part. And I I I thought that that was kind of a, a really interesting aspect of of kind of taking what 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 a researcher might expect and and reading through this, but then saying, don't forget about these various levels, like you've like you've mentioned. Don't forget that you have this connection to the these end users. Don't forget. That this is a process in partnership. That was nicely done. How that that was built in, and you know, the, there are other things that you you clearly worked hard on trying to 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 find these ways to infuse it. I'm I'm curious about how how this has been received or how people are are using some of these guidelines in terms of work that they're initiating, and maybe it's how you're using it. But 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 in general, how how it's been? What's the uptake of these of these guidelines? Let me tell you, I give an example about the validity and instruments that are locally adapted. And we have, I've been working while I was in the still national level scale doing research. And we have collaborators that are from other, other side of the world, Western. They have, we were working together, we are designing a study, then we are starting building instruments. And some of the instruments, you know, some of the instruments, they are just being adapted from different studies. So you might sometimes you don't need to design a new tool. You can just adapt from another survey. So we received these questions and we are looking at this list of questions that we are supposed to go and ask them in the community. And you look at some of the questions, it was like, wow, this question, even me, if now I turn myself to be a community, I won't be able to respond to this question. Because in the context of this country, you can't ask this question. So it could be, sometimes it was like the way the question is, the information that you are looking, is just cultural, you can't ask a woman that question. But wherever that question was adapted, that culture, it was okay. So now we are going through this discussion that this question has to be two things. Either we have to rephrase it, go around, round, round, you can do maybe, a, find a way to capture, maybe find a sociologist to go and ask this question in a different way, or drop it. 
And sometimes you manage to drop questions. Sometimes you don't, it's like the pressure is too much, then we retain some of the questions. You go to the field, you know what is happening? They are coming all not answered, or I don't know, I don't know. It's not that they don't know, they couldn't ask that question. And sometimes even you, the interviewer, you can't ask this older, <laughs> elderly woman, like, how can I ask you this question? Culture is not acceptable. So these are the things that we try like, okay, valid and reliable, that's good, but they have to be appropriate. So these are, I'm just giving an example because I've been through that. <laughs> and then the two are linked, right? Because then you have bad quality data, you know, because this is an example Susan has given where then you don't have data. But then in other cases, you don't know, you know, maybe researchers found a way around it, the field workers, you know, they're all very uh, entrepreneurial, resourceful people. And then, you know, they might be finding ways, you know, also around it and asking the question in a way that they feel is, uh, you know, an appropriate way. But then everybody has a different way of dealing with this and then in the end even a worst case scenario than the one Susan uh, mentioned is then you have answers but actually they're not uh, they're not uh, accurate they're not valid because they're not really the answer to that question because each field worker each interviewer yeah changed it in a way that they felt was uh, was uh, was necessary and you have absolutely no knowledge view or handle on this so then the important yeah that we we we're really really aware of these issues and uh, that I think that's why then they're really infused uh, everywhere because in the end these uh, guidelines were developed really by people who, who who do the research and who know about this and yeah and the two are connected because in the end if you don't have locally adapted tool you also don't have a valid tool so they and that's a bit maybe one of a uh, yeah one of the things that we struggled a little bit with the guidelines is that you know we try to make it something very linear step by step but in the end it's not so linear step by step you know these two things we separated them as like an integrity issue and a fairness issue, but in the end, it's it's all kind of together. And uh, and in that sense, for us, it's important that the guidelines are used more as like a an aid, you know, something that to to carry along with you, to remind you, to keep on looking at, you know, regularly to refresh your mind, because it's yeah, it's a bit circular. A study isn't so you know linear step by step. First I check if it's technically sound, then I check, you know, if it, first I check if it's reliable, then I check if it's culturally appropriate no it's you know it's all together and then in the end it's the piloting that will also uh, tell you if this tool is uh, is really working well that's all the time we have for this episode of stats and stories sandra and susan thank you so much for joining us today thank you thank you thanks again Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.